This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name is Mark Vance. I'm going to be hosting this podcast today, and I am joined by a special guest, um, another one of our elders in this kind of Meet Your Elders series that we've been doing on the Equip Podcast. I'm joined today by Alex Tuckness. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, Alex, I've been doing this podcast kind of with the idea that I'm going to ask each one of our elders like five questions. But before we kind of get into the questions, I want some general background on you. So where are you from? Like, where did you grow up? What's your family like? How long have you been at Cornerstone? How long have you been an elder here? What do you do for fun? So there's a whole bunch in there, Alex. So just kind of give us uh, the getting to know uh, Alex Tuckness overview. Uh, Great. So I I grew up in uh, Springfield, Missouri, in the Ozarks, in a really great Christian family uh, with parents who were teaching me about Jesus from as long, you know, as I can remember. And that was a great, uh, a great place in a lot of ways to grow up. So I uh, left after high school to basically turn pro as a student. So I went to college at the University of Chicago, and then I went to Cambridge University in England for a year. Uh, then I was at Princeton for four years. And then I uh, applied for jobs and I got exactly one job offer, uh, which was from Iowa State University, which I then took. And uh, that that brought me to Ames. And uh, yeah, so I've been uh, in Ames for the last, I guess, 21 years now. I came in 99. So um, I guess 22 uh, this, uh, this summer. Uh, I met my wife, Anastasia, after I moved here. And she and I have been married since 2004. And uh, I think I've been an elder since 2005. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of drawn to Cornerstone when I moved here, um, both by just kind of the, the preaching and gospel message of the church, but especially the Hartford College students. So I was going to be a professor. And one of the reasons I decided to become a professor is I hadn't known very many Christian professors when I was going through school. And I wanted to be someone who could kind of have that relationship with students. And so uh, going where the college students were was a great, uh, great option for me. Oh, that's awesome. So, okay, as a uh, kind of professional student, professor, you know, what do you do for fun? Because oh, right. I've, you know, I've interdu- interviewed Troy and Troy kills things for fun. I, and I don't, I say that, that sounds sick when I say it out loud. He's a hunter, you know, he's an outdoorsman. He does all those things. And I am, Absolutely none of those things, Alex. And so uh-huh. part of this is showing the variety of people we have here. So like, what do you enjoy doing? Yeah, that's great. So uh, not shockingly, I enjoy reading. Uh, Anastasia and I like doing outside stuff. Like we're not like super hardy backpack in the wilderness for a week sort of people. We're more like get a cabin and then go walk around for several hours kind of people. But um, yeah, we like doing outside uh, kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I enjoy, uh, strategy games, that kind of stuff. Um, I like, uh, you know, we've got kind of a minor home gym set up in the basement. And so I will, uh, you know, watch all old episodes of the office or other, you know, similar kind of stuff, (laughs) you know, Marvel movies, you you kind of name it while I 
why exercise? That's fun. So this is this is great insight into the professor and elder here. This is great. So Alex, I want to jump into the five questions. And in the five questions, there are several that I ask every time. One of them is this one: How did you come to faith? How did you become a Christian? Yeah. So. My dad was teaching me to memorize uh, Proverbs from the old Living Bible when I was like two. Like he would come home from teaching school and we would wrestle around on the living room floor. And so you can kind of imagine two-year-old Alex flying across the room, landing on the couch while saying things like, don't praise yourself, let others do it. You know, so that was, you know, uh, so I just kind of grew up in a family that had a lot of just love and joy in Jesus Christ that was centered in the church, that was centered in the gospel. And so I was really young when I came to my, I think it was my mom. And I said, Hey, I want to become a Christian. Uh, and my, I was young enough. My parents weren't quite sure what to do with it. So I actually called our pastor and they're like, I don't know, he might be too young. And the, our pastor said, well, if you wait till he's got all his questions figured out, he's never going to become a Christian because he's always going to have questions. So, you know, <laughs> let the children come to me was yeah, kind of the, right. the <laughs> philosophy. And so that, that meant that as you do get older, then there's all these questions you end up having to wrestle through. Like, do I believe this? Cause I really think it's true. Or was I just kind of born into this? And I believe it cause that's what I was taught when I was, uh, you know, a small child. And so as I got older, there was a kind of a series of stages, you know, first in like middle school, then uh, in college of kind of having to wrestle with my faith and say, no, I, uh, I really believe this. Uh, for myself, not just uh, for my parents. So, uh, yeah, that's a little bit about how I I became a Christian. So, you mentioned earlier your journey as a Christian and an academic. Part of um, your desire was you hadn't actually seen in that professional student career a ton of really great academics who also seriously pursued their Christian faith. And so, what is that like for you? Is there a tension inside that, Alex, where you're, you're not going in every day in your classroom and teaching people the Bible? You're, that's not what you do. Um, so how do, how do you work your way through that, that question of how can I be a robust and like well-read and thoughtful academic in the academy, but also robustly hold to and adhere to the tense of my Christian faith? Yeah, that's great. So when I was in grad school, there was a group of Christian grad students I, I was meeting with, and we talk about this kind of stuff. And uh, we actually did a, a Bible study on the book of Daniel, which was like one of the most helpful Bible studies I ever did. Because um, I was, you know, thinking through how am I going to navigate this as a, as a professor. So Daniel is like an all-star student scholar. You know, he, he, goes to Babylon U and is better than the Babylonians at learning their literature and, uh, you know, suddenly finds himself kind of fast-tracked into a position of influence, but it's an influence in this hostile environment in many ways that doesn't share his moral assumptions, it doesn't share his religion and things like that. And what I really liked about Daniel is you see on the one hand, like, he picks his battles, right? He doesn't like, they give him a new name. He goes along with it, right? Even though it's got kind of idolatrous, you know, echoes to the name and things right. like that. Right. He's, he's, he faithfully works for some guys who are not always the best people to work for. <laughs> right. Um, but he also has 
kind of figured out there's certain lines that I can't cross and still be faithful to who God has called me to be. And so if that means going to the lions, that means going to the lions and he's willing to um, kind of figure out what his line in the sand was. And so I remember thinking about that and just kind of coming to Iowa state with a philosophy that uh, I was not going to be the guy who was like going around trying to create conflict um, because of my faith, but that I also wasn't going to be like a secret Christian if that's the only way I could get tenure at Iowa State, right? And so I've been willing to, you know, speak and teach in various public contexts all the way back, you know, from early on after I came to to Ames, um, knowing that there could be some consequences to that, but just kind of feeling like Daniel, like, if the only way I can avoid persecution or the only way I can avoid, you know, negative effects for my career is by being a secret Christian, then I got to, I got to choose the persecution, right? That would be better. And fortunately in my case, I've actually had very little, right? So my, my journey at Iowa state has often been, you know, a lot of like, Oh, I wonder if this is the thing that's going to get me in trouble. And then normally not much happens, you know? So, uh, I, I benefit from the fact that most people don't actually care that much what political science professors think. Um, I think if there were some, there's some other disciplines I, if I were in, I would have had a, <laughs> more trouble because people would care more. Um, so there are advantages to being unimportant. Okay. So this is a subset question yeah. on that one though, Alex, you're a political science prof. Yep. So inside of that, why, why are you interested in that? Like, Everybody has specialties in the academic. Dis- like, what are you actually, as an academic, what are you good at? <laughs> I don't know if that <laughs> that's a great question. So, ask the question that yeah. way. <laughs> so, one thing to know is, I am a, I'm in a political science department, but I'm not really a political scientist. Like, in the like scientist sense of things, like a lot of my colleagues, they like get these huge data sets and they do all these statistical tests to try to figure out like what causes what in politics. And um, for me, I actually halfway through college decided I wanted to switch to philosophy because I actually liked philosophy better than political science. And, uh, you know, some curmudgeonly administrators made me decide that wasn't the you know, best option for me. So I found this niche within political science called political theory, which is kind of like the intersection of philosophy and politics. So uh, a lot of what I do is actually just read old stuff. You know, I read texts from centuries past to try to understand how people thought about what justice is, what freedom is, what democracy is, you know, all those kinds of questions. And so a lot of my job is just kind of trying to create dialogue between us and our questions today and them and their questions then to try to figure out what we can learn from each other. You read old texts and try to bridge the modern world. So I've got a modern world question. And the modern world question is, you've been a professor for now 21 years at Iowa Mm -hmm. State University coming up this summer. And so you've been on the front, not only as an elder, and I've worked with you in Salt Company a bunch. uh, So we've worked on the discipleship of students side from that angle, but you've also experienced it in the classroom. So you we talk about these cultural shifts that happen generationally. You actually watch this in your classroom. So what is different? What has changed? Um, what are you seeing in the average student be in your kind of like vantage point of 20 years at Iowa State? What's different than them today than when you started? 
Well, and, you know, in politics in particular, uh, my students are more liberal uh, now than they were uh, 20 years ago, you know, so, you know, they're, they're, like when I first started, uh, you could have a debate like for and against whether uh, gay marriage should be uh, legalized or not. Now you really can't. Like I've got to pick a different topic because uh, there's right. students. It's almost consensus. Coming yeah, it's, in the it's, classroom. A, it's it's pretty close to consensus, and the the ones who disagree with it don't very feel very comfortable saying it out loud um, in the context, right? So I switch to something where I can get more debate going, like polygamy instead, which raises some of the same questions, right? About uh, whether society as a whole can set limits on what counts as marriage or doesn't count marriage. Uh, and even on that, right, I can kind of watch uh, the percentage of my students who are in favor of it, like, steadily increase, you know, over the, the 20 years. You know, more of my students uh, are, like, have fond feelings about socialism now. Uh, still not a majority, but a lot more of them than there were 20 years ago. So that's one, mm-hmm. one difference. I think, actually, maybe in some ways a bigger and more important difference uh, is how much time they spend staring at phones. Like... You know, so like it used to be I walk into class and the students are there and they talk to each other, right? Like talking to your classmates before class used to be like a very normal thing to do. Uh, you know, I, you ride SciRide and people would just talk to each other on SciRide, right? And now like you get on SciRide and everybody's staring at a device, right? You walk into the class and everybody's staring at a screen. And uh, so like they're in the class together, but I think there's, there's often less of a sense of like physical connection that they have to each other. Um, so I think, I think the single biggest change all have to do with smartphones. Uh, if I were going to, you know, say what's different, I think that's the biggest thing. Wow. That is an incredible observation. I, you, I, I talked, well, I think it was actually talking with my son some about, the difference of, he's like, what did you used to do? Because I didn't have the internet at my house. I didn't have a, I, I didn't have a cell phone until I was well into college, you know? And so he's like, well, how did you, how would you get together with your friends? And I was like, I would walk to their house. I would like <laughs> knock on their door, you know? This is like a whole other world. <laughs> he's like, well, they wouldn't know you're coming. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's what we did. <laughs> I, I remember a long time ago, I saw this cartoon, uh, and it's this picture of this family just staring at an empty wall. Uh, and the caption is something like, before the invention of television. <laughs> you know? That's what people did. That's what people did. Right? They just stare at the wall waiting for somebody to come up with TV, you know? Um, oh, so it's like, it's, it's often hard for us to imagine, like, back into an earlier era. But I think it's actually really, but, you know, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is, uh, and C.S. Lewis said, um, if you're moving in the wrong direction, going forward isn't progress. Um, and so we've got all this tech, for example. Um, but part of the reason I do what I do is some of the things we've done moving forward aren't actually progress. And so I like to go back and I, I read people from a couple hundred years ago and see what they have to think. And sometimes they've got some good stuff to say. Okay, so here's the hot topic today that I'm hoping even some of that historical knowledge is going to help us because we have just, um, as of yesterday, we're recording this January 21st, um, we just inaugurated a new president, but this has been an incredibly contentious 
and polarized uh, political season. And even with the recent riots in the Capitol to riots that were happening in American cities all throughout the summer to the tension of COVID and just so much, Alex, is there hope that we're going to be able to redeem this? Just let's talk about America as a country. Where, what should Christians be thinking about? What should we be concerned about when it comes to political and national unity? Yeah, so I, I think one thing that's helpful to remember is um, even a few decades is a really short period of time in the span of history. You know, so if, if you know, we'll round and call my wife 50 years, that's not very long, right? And uh, had I been born a decade earlier, I'd have memories of the 1960s, right? Uh, and could remember just how tumultuous things were then. I mean, it was very tumultuous. Um, and then, you know, you know, further back, the Civil War was just horrific, right? So, so those are both really, you know, polarized times that America went through and survived, right? So mm -hmm. it, it could be that there may be just a kind of a little bit of a cyclical nature that there, there are periods of unrest. There are periods of polarization that, you know, like a lot of other things, eventually the pendulum starts swinging back the other direction. Um, so, so that's one thought. My, if I can go to start thinking in terms of centuries, though, instead of decades, the other thing that actually helps me, right, is... Uh, when I look at the sweep of history, you know, the Romans come and then the Romans go, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the Babylonians yeah. come, the Babylonians go, the Persians come, the Persians go. Right. So like the British empire used to be a really big deal. Um, and it's not a really big deal anymore. Right. And so the, it's just the nature of history that no worldly power endures forever. Only the kingdom of God does. And so, mm. If, if, the, if you're asking me, like, will America be the preeminent power in the world forever? Uh, the answer is highly unlikely, <laughs> right? I mean, every other great power, right, has eventually um, become not the great power anymore, right? So unless Jesus comes back quickly, it's inevitable that what has happened to every other world power will eventually happen to us, right? And so there's there's... There's a sense in which knowing that's just kind of how history goes reminds you that what happens to the church is actually much more significant to me uh, as I think about the future than what happens to Christianity. I'm sorry, than what happens to America, right? Mm. Yeah. The church is founded by Jesus Christ and the gates of hell are never going to prevail against it. And rulers can come and go, countries can come and go, but the church of Jesus Christ, right, is more foundational and more fundamental even than world empires, right, which come and go, but it's something that actually lasts forever. Wow. Okay, on that note, final question, and it's a church-related one. You yeah. have served on the elder team. We've served together for a number of years, and each of the elders, I've been asking them, what's the prayer that you're having right now for the church? What are some of the things on your heart and where you're praying, God, I want to see this grow in this next season for this church body locally of Cornerstone Church of Ames. What's on your heart, Alex? Yeah, so I, a few things. Like one is I would like to see our church deepen in a biblically balanced view of justice. I think justice is maybe the most important like word in our culture right now. And people are trying to figure out what it is and what it means. Um, but I think if you 
just get your understanding of justice from the right politically, from the left politically, you're going to end up with an imbalanced view. Like the, the, the biblical view is it's got individual aspects of individual responsibility. It's also got more collective structural things that acknowledges like it's, it's both. And there's this tendency to make everything one or the other in our culture that kind of leads to some of this polarization we've been talking about. And I think as Christians, we've got, we've actually got something better uh, to offer. Uh, a second thing is I would like to see us just be better at extending charity to others and not uh, being quick to assume the worst possible motives um, and the worst possible interpretation of what others have done. I think, uh, you know, in worldly terms, the easiest way to create unity is by finding a common enemy and then like demonizing the enemy, stirring up anger, fear, resentment toward the enemy, and that'll cause us to be unified. Uh, and both political parties do it. Uh, but I'd like to see the Church of Jesus Christ look really different than that, right? That we're people mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. able um, to take the risk of thinking well of others, to take the risk of not being quick to jump to those kinds of negative conclusions. And I think we can do that because Jesus has modeled for us love that casts out fear, right? That Jesus was able to love people he knew were not going to love him back, right? So we don't have to assume reciprocity in order to love, right? I think that's kind of central to the the Christian message. I mean, Jesus even says things like, blessed are you when people persecute you because of me, right? If I really believe that, that frees me to love people who might persecute me. Um, I don't I don't have to live in fear of persecution because Jesus has told me if, if I'm just being faithful and persecution comes, I'm I'm going to actually, when all is said and done, be blessed by it rather than harmed by it once I can view things from an eternal perspective. So I think that's what I'd like to see uh, see for our church in this coming year, is us to grow mm. in those areas. Man, amen, Alex. It's an incredible prayer and an incredible hope. And I think as we close here, I just want to say you've you've taught me so much in those areas, just the conversations of being able to open the Bible and think through what is justice from a biblical perspective and the wisdom that you've brought, the insight that you've brought. I, I hope I'm a more charitable kind of just person because I've had a relationship with you and because our church is led by you. And so, Alex, I just want to say I'm super thankful for you. Looking forward to, Lord willing, many more years serving together and the elder team. And just thanks for the ways that you've served Cornerstone Church. Really appreciate you, brother. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark.